0: Welcome to the When to Jump podcast. This episode is a doozy. Matt Polson, founder and CEO, co-founder, co-CEO of Omaze is joining us. And this has very little to do with the actual company Matt started and much to do with uh, what happened in the time between us getting connected to do this interview and the interview happening. It was about a six month gap. And within those six months, Matt underwent one of the most surreal life changes I can I can imagine. So, uh, and and I couldn't actually imagine it happening. So maybe that I couldn't even imagine. Needless to say, this is a jump story that goes well beyond moving from one thing to another. Without further ado, I want to take you right there. My conversation with Matt Polson. Here you go. Matt Polson, founder, one of the founders of Omaze. Thanks so much for joining me on the When to Jump podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm excited. So. We were just talking before we got going. You know, this is a a funny one with with jump stories. Uh, There's there's a lot of different ways that we could go in in talking about your own story, uh, what Omaze does to kind of further other folks' jumps and dreams. Um, And then, you know, most recently... Kind of some some crazy current events that have maybe changed a perspective or two about how how you or or we all can think about taking a jump. And so, I w- I'd love to touch it all if if that's all right with you. And appreciate you joining.
1: Absolutely, let's do it.
0: So let's start at the very beginning. Uh, you know, tell folks a bit about you know you as a person. Where uh, where did you grow up? What were you kind of most interested in? Was was tech kind of the end goal? I, I know a lot of these stories seem like that was predestined to to happen for entrepreneurs to make something, but it doesn't necessarily seem like it was so obvious if we retrace the steps.
1: Yeah, for me it was especially not obvious. Tech was never really on the horizon. So I grew up in Laguna Niguel. My dad was a criminal defense attorney. My mom was a, um, she ran a program at a hospital called No One Dies Alone where she would sit with people at the end of their life that didn't have anyone else. So it was really like service was really ingrained into my family growing up. Um, I went off to Stanford for college, was a huge basketball player and fan my whole life. And so like, you know, when I was a young kid, I I was on a team based out of Compton, even though I lived in Laguna Niguel and um, was, you know, really diverse experience. The team was an amazing team of Basketball players who a lot of which ended up in the NBA. We won the national championships, but it just showed me at a long, young age um, some of the opportunities that were offered to me that were not offered to my buddies. Um, and so I left. Uh, I left Stanford. I went into um, cause content with my co-founder Ryan. We'd met at Stanford, and our passion was using storytelling to inspire action. You know, because the beauty of a story is that it enables you to understand someone's experiences who are different than yours, right? And so when you do that, you connect with that person and you want to help with that person. And the more you help that person, the more you connected, you feel. So it's kind of a virtuous cycle. So we did a bunch of projects along those lines. Um, We are the first directors on Live Earth, if you remember that, which is the biggest concert ever thrown um, on seven continents in one night to raise awareness for climate change. We traveled around the world interviewing the world's greatest thinkers, a couple hundred Nobel Prize winners and MacArthur Genius Grant recipients. And we, um, and we did the Clinton Foundation's big 10th anniversary global concert with everyone from, you know, Jay-Z and Bono to Bill Gates and Tony Blair. Um, we did a doc called Girl Rising about girls education developing world with Oprah. So we were doing all this work with these really, you know, influential people. And then we just realized we were creating a lot of awareness around our work, but not necessarily a lot of impact. Um so we decided to have a we needed to figure out a better model to do what we were passionate about. And so that led me to go to business school and try to surround ourselves with people smarter than us. And so I went off to Wharton and uh you know and, and I never even opened Excel before I got there. It was purely on the creative filmmaking side. Um and then when we were in school we went to this event that Magic Johnson was hosting for the Boys and Girls Club where he was auctioning off the chance to play basketball with him and go to a Lakers game. But it was one of those things that was only available to the high net worth individuals sitting in the room. And Ryan, my co-founder and I were in the room, but not high net worth individuals. We were, you know, grad students and and just kind of like the guys get invited to one of these, you know, events to fill the table. And so we just sat there and watched as the auction went up to fifteen thousand dollars. And we couldn't afford to participate. But Magic, you know, as a basketball player growing up, Magic was my childhood hero. There's nothing. I'd rather do than play basketball with Magic Johnson. So when we were driving home that night, we just, you know, we were talking about how we were the biggest fans in the room, but we couldn't afford to participate. And what if we made that available to everybody online for the chance to win? You could raise so much more money, so much more awareness, open up a whole new donor base. And that was where the idea came from.
0: And so at that point, you know, a lot of people tend to think there's like this divergence of paths. Like you either, you want to do good, you, 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 you want to make a difference in the world. And and yet you're at a business school program. A lot of folks listening have gone to business school or maybe are thinking about it. A lot of folks haven't. Uh, Did you feel like there was this push and pull? Like, okay, I'm at the fork in the road. I got to either decide like, go do go do good or go go do well, but you you can't go do both? Or was that something that started to creep in your mind kind of that night as you're driving home?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I had gone to school to try to figure out a better way to do what we were passionate about, you know, and to do and I believe that you can do good and do well. So I I fundamentally went there looking, trying to come up with the idea. But then, you know, you're in a year and a half into a two year program. And I we had not come up with the idea. And so you're starting to run out of time. And I worked at McKinsey in between first and second year because I'd never had a real job before going to business school. So I thought, okay, I'll see what this is like. And then I got the offer to come back to McKinsey. It obviously is a very well-paying job. I'm now $200,000 in debt. and, And I haven't figured out what this other thing is. And basically a week before this Magic Johnson event happened, was the deadline for which which I had to tell McKinsey whether I was going to join or not, you know, and I was really going back and forth because I just didn't have another option. And I was, I just, in my heart knew that that was not the right path. And I, and I couldn't logically explain it. Everyone thought I was crazy, but I called them and said, look, I'm I'm sorry. I just cannot accept this job. I really appreciate it. And they said, okay, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I haven't figured it out. And the guy was like, what? we've never, we've had people turn down jobs before. We've never had someone turn down that didn't know what they were going to do. And I was like, I know, but I like, I just know I have to go in another direction and it'll be revealed. And then a week later, the Magic Johnson thing happened. So I, I, I really believe to win the jump, like part of it is just burning the boats behind you. You know, the optionality can sometimes not be your friend. Yeah, that,
0: that really resonates. I, I think for those who are longtime listeners, nearly a year ago, one of our early episodes when we kicked off the podcast, I, uh, I had a, my brother-in-law who is ex-Air Force join the show. And those listening will know where the story goes, but it was, it was almost identical to what you described. It got an, an offer from, it might've been McKinsey or something close to it. It was at Stanford Business School and slept on it and just something felt different. And he, you know, I think found that same thing when you burn the boats, you're, you're left with no choice. But it sounds like from his experience and certainly from what you've described, you know, you, you knew there was something else. And could you maybe speak towards that little voice that, you know, that's it, mentioned in, in the book that came out about this and when we were looking at like how most jumps start, it sounds like there was some thread that you could at least kind of anchor towards or pull on that, that, that gave you some rationale that, that making a crazy decision like rejecting that job you know wasn't all that crazy if if you really were honest with yourself was there any was there any thread of a voice
1: absolutely you know i think the key to life is or not the key to life that sounds too grand but one of the most important things is figuring out how to create space for that voice right like we know that we have when we say follow your heart or follow your gut like it sounds a little bit just kind of you know mystical or spiritual but we know that there's 400 million neurons in our gut and a hundred million in our heart. Right. So there are like, there is information that comes from those sources. Um, you know, for me it was when I was working at McKinsey, I'd, I'd also sold this show to Fox. So I would work at McKinsey from 8am to like 11 PM. And then I would go home and I would write this show with my buddy from, you know, 1130 at night to three in the morning. And I remember at McKinsey, I'd be tired by like, 10am you know just like kind of drained by the work and not motivated yeah. and and then i would get home at 11:30 30 at night and be so energized because this show was a comedy about climate change that we thought like could both be really entertaining but spread a word and it just the energy that comes from that like we we definitely underestimate that and i knew that i could feel it right and so i knew that my body was not reacting to that kind of other work and then if i didn't follow that if i if i went down that path i would be you know They see Shakespeare says, like, you the brave, like only die once cowards die a hundred times. I I think a little piece of me would have died. So you can kind of feel that you get signals from your I I take very seriously the signals from your heart or your gut around those things. Because, you know, you just have to kind of create the space and remove the noise from your brain when those messages are being told to you. Oh man, that was
0: so poignant. I wish I had met you when I was writing the section of this part of the book. That was so much better explained than it took me to, you know, six months to write. <laughs> so you, you you say no, obviously on paper, like really crazy decision. You're you're in a, a bit of debt. You, you're you a grad student looking at your last couple months of school.
1: What happens next from that point? You know, the moment that we came up with the idea, we just knew in like the deepest part of our soul that it would work, right? So I literally just did everything I could to minimize any burden I have of classes. Like I tried to restructure every one of my classes to be independent studies or to work on this project. We then got a job offer to do this thing for the Clinton Foundation from our first investor, this guy named Kevin Wall. And we said we don't want to do another job, we want to do this. And he's like, look, you'll you'll be connected with every influential person in the world that you want to do this with i'll give you office space you can spend half time doing this this clinton foundation thing and also work on your business um at the same time and we're like wow that sounds pretty good so we took that and we were kind of doing both jobs at the beginning um i think sometimes a misnomer on like when to jump is like you have to jump like you have to totally remove anything else from your life, you know what I mean? You can make the spiritual jump, but also understand, okay, I'm going to like, I'm going to create a little bridge there, you know? And so that was a really helpful bridge for us. And, and then we just set out, like we had to figure out a bunch of legal stuff to be able to like make this work from us. Like, uh, you know, doing these kind of once in a lifetime experiences online, the way we do it is there's a thorny legal environment that we had to navigate. So I had to go to 17 different lawyers, to try to get them to write an opinion to show how we could make this work. And I ended up learning, learning more about speech Stakes law than I think most people know in the country. There's just not a lot of speech fix lawyers. So literally like that was a lot of time. And then we came out, we did this job at the same time we raised money and then we had to go and convince all these charities and talent to take a chance on us to even do this thing. And, you know, so then we went and we launched it. And then, you know, like the first 13 months, like it didn't work at all. Like we were literally like three weeks away from being out of cash when we got our break.
0: And I wanna to get to that break in a second, but describe, and we love kind of talking about failures in our community. I think it's important to celebrate them. 17 kind of question mark or worse answers when you like go to, to lawyers to think about sweepstakes. What, what, what pushed you forward for the
1: first 16? Just a belief so deeply that this would work and should exist in the world. Just trying to be creative like they like, you know, we had the foremost gaming people said, you're never going to make it work. And we just studied the laws and just said, like, there has to be a way. Like so many businesses have been started in regulatory environments where the laws hadn't caught up with the need for the moment. Right. If you look at YouTube, PayPal, like there's so many that like they just they didn't let that stop them. And so we just said we're not going to let that stop us. That's those laws are stupid, so we need to figure out a way around them.
0: Yeah. Oh man, I love it. And so describe the kind of the the system you set up. I know you did before, but I want to make sure our listeners kind of understand the the concept you went for, and, and then what that break was when it happened.
1: Yeah. So the concept is that we raise money and awareness for charities by offering the chance to win once in a lifetime experiences. Um, we've done everything from be in the next Star Wars movie to get your hair cut with Ronaldo, to ride in a tank with Arnold Schwarzenegger and crush things. But rather than one high net worth individual paying twenty five or fifty thousand dollars to have one of these experiences, we make it so that anybody in the world can donate ten bucks for the chance to win. So it's like a global charity raffle effectively. And as a result it raises two to forty x for the charity, and also anybody in the world, not just high net worth individuals, can have these experiences
0: and what was the break as you were winding down on cash and, and looking for for something to click? What happens?
1: yeah, so we um, you know we had been at it for a little over a year, and nothing had really really hit, and so we didn't have a great fundraising story. Um, we had people on our team. Like, we had one developer who was also our analytics guy, who was also our finance guy, who was like, this is never going to work. Like, I'm leaving. And, you know, I was like, look, just give us three more months. Um, Like, we can find ways. He's like, the math will never add up. I was like, it will. This is, you know, what has to change. And so then um, a competitor came on the scene. They were really smart guys running it. And, You know, the most we'd ever raised with one of these experiences was 20,000. And they came out and did one with Jamie Oliver and it raised 120,000. And like for that, that might as well to us seemed like a billion dollars at that time. It just seemed so impossible. And we had one coming with Brian Cranston around Breaking Bad. And we thought that could be our, once we saw them do that, we thought, oh, wow, that can be our, you know, no pun intended, that can be our break because there's show much popularity and people love him. And we were getting set to launch it with him. And Samuel L. Jackson did a campaign with our competitor and called out Brian Cranston in the campaign and they raised like 180,000. And and then they went to Brian and said, Look, we've raised so much more than these guys. You should do this with us instead of them. And then I got like a call from Brian's people saying, Yeah, Brian's going to go to this other team. And I was like, No, he can't. Like, if he would have gone, we would have been done. And so we found out that he was at a charity event that weekend and we, Stuck into the charity event and went up to him and said, look, Brian, this is, you know, we've been chatting and I'm through your people and we're super excited to do this with you. And, um, you know, where you might go to do something else and we promise you like we will, we will raise so much more. And he's like, well, these guys think they can raise me 200,000. And I said, I, well, we can raise you 250,000. And he's like, well, what's the most you've ever raised? And I said, 20,000. <laughs> he's like, well, how the hell are you going to do that? I was like, look, we'll put our entire. Heart and life into this thing, and we'll we'll be more creative. We'll create content, and he's like, "Look, it's all about the charity here, man." And I was like, "Look, I promise you, we will raise you more." And we ended up raising three hundred thousand. And then he introduced us to Aaron Paul, you know, who's also on the show. And then we did one with him around the very final episode, where you got to ride in the Winnebago with them and watch last episode and um, cook eggs and do all that thing. And that one raised one point seven million, and it had raised forty thousand at auction. And so then we were kind of off and running.
0: (laughs) What was going through your mind when you're like, listen, I know we can get to 250. And then and then right right afterwards, he's like, well, how much have you raised so far?
1: I I mean, it sounds so crazy and it makes me sound braver than I am. I was terrified. He was also Heisenberg, you know, Um, but (laughs) when you're just like when something has to work, it had to work for us. We believe so deeply in it and we knew at a deeper level there was a deeper wisdom there was something else that was telling us that like we could overcome any of those things And when you're tapped into that I, I knew we would do it i just knew we would um and i had no evidence to point it like literally our analytics guy would have bet me his entire life savings that we couldn't get a hundred thousand he actually legitimately did he's like I'll, you know like there's no way we were going to deliver that and then we did
0: And I think you have to be that you know crazy, and I, I wrote this in the in the book, but I talk about it a lot on this like show with with a bunch of different guests. But no matter what you're going into, whether you're trying to do good, do well, do both, like you, a jump. I think you have to have that conviction where you're you may be crazy, but you're not stupid, right? Like you have some reason to believe this is going to work, and 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 then you bet all you go all in on it, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we had there was a, this other company had done one hundred eighty thousand, right, and we knew we could look at the the analytics and the zeitgeist and the social followings of breaking bad. And we knew what a fever pitch that was. And so we weren't like, you know, I wasn't just like pie in the sky. Like it was, so we just believed that there's nothing superior about their platform and we could create content that would be more compelling. And so like, there was a reason, but you know, I had no evidence that we could do it.
0: Yeah. It's funny. That reminds me of the kind of turning point for when to jump was also a couple of weeks before things would have probably, you know, bottomed out financially. And I was on my buddy's couch and I, I've shared the story before, but I was, uh, you know, happened to be sitting next to a woman at a dinner party and and she asked me what I was up to. And I I think I had the benefit of not knowing the person I was talking to where you, I think, you know, you, you knew the gamble you were taking when you, you you go in to speak to someone of that nature. But for me, I just laid it out and I had sketchings and drawings of two years of Of a plan that I had pitched my buddy and and now is working on in his honor, and I felt like nothing could stop me. Even though you know, (laughs) fourteen days later I would be stopped with with money running out. So so you laid all the line, and and that turned that woman turns out to be you know Arianna Huffington, and then you just keep you know pushing it forward because if if she believed you and 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 you didn't stop there, why would you stop now? And and then you get that first. You know, we, we released a partnership and it worked out well from there. But I think you got to just be all in. And if you're not, it's going to be hard to make
1: that jump work. I totally agree. I think what happens is when you have when you're all in or you or you have nothing to lose, then your whole mindset is just oriented towards what's possible. Right. You're just looking. You just say your channel is open and you're just looking for opportunities to come in that can make this work for you. Whereas if you have a lot of other choices or you're kind of in you know then you're you're you spend your time thinking about what you could lose if you went this way or whatever it is um and it just you end up more time in your mind and kind of open to all the information that's around you at all times that can kind of come in, and then people can sense it on the other side right so I used to believe those things are kind of coincidences, and I don't anymore <laughs> you know it's it's been such a crazy journey that I really do think how open you are. The world gives you kind of what you're ready to receive. Oh, totally. I, there's some sort of, you know, juju you
0: put out there. Like I I think of, you know, what Michael Lewis, the, the real Michael Lewis talks about when you, you put yourself in a position to get lucky, you know, you start to find this luck, but you know, is that luck? And, you know, it reminds me of the story. First story in the book is, um, on you know a failed screenwriter quits his job to try one more time to be a screenwriter fails at that point and has burned the boat. So the only thing he can do is just write another script. And he wouldn't have written that other script if he had a job that paid him fine and 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 could just do other things with his time. Maybe he would just change hobbies because the world was telling him on paper, you know, you're not going to be a screenwriter. But because that was his job, he wrote and, you know, shut himself in an office each day and ends up writing Sleepless in Seattle and then kind of writes rewrites romantic comedies. But none of that would have happened if he was doing it part-time at some point, right?
1: Yeah, luck is preparation meets opportunity.
0: Yeah, so on that note, I want to I want to zoom upwards in the chronology here because you know we 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 got connected through mutual friend and uh, in the spring and and then all of a sudden like it went from like looking like we would be able to chat to then not hearing from you and I was like listen omaze is doing big things. Matt's a busy guy. I like totally get that. Like don't want to bother him. And then someone on your team reached out and was like, "Hey, Matt can, you know, would love to chat, but it's going to be a bit." Uh then we get on the phone today and you say that you were pronounced dead somewhat recently. Can you like fill in the gaps?
1: Yeah. Um yeah, it was it was a crazy story. So basically what happened was there's no way to tell this short. I'll try to tell a shorter version, but I, you know, you also want to capture the spirit of it. So basically what happened was I, when I was born, my stomach was twisted in a knot and I, they had to remove two thirds of my small intestine and they thought I was going to die when I was born. And so all these years later, the scar tissue from that surgery broke off and started causing these stomach pains. So I called my buddy who I went to warden with, who's also a doctor and said, look, my stomach is really hurting. Um, it hurts more than normal. I'm supposed to go out on a date with this girl I really like tonight, it's our second date, but I think this is something special and I wanna go. Do you think I need to go in and get checked? And he said, look, it sounds like you're, maybe your appendix is bursting, better safe than sorry. You should go to the hospital just, just to get checked out. Maybe you can still make your date. So I go in, my stomach gets progressively worse as I'm getting there. Um, the pain starts to become insanely acute. Um, my parents come. Anna, the girl who I was supposed to go on a date, comes, um, and they tell they say, "Look, we're not sure what's going on. We're going to let this see if it undoes itself overnight, and if if not, then we'll do a surgery in the morning." Over the course, of, so my parents go home as the over the course of the night, my my blood pressure starts to plummet, my heart rate starts to plummet. Doctors get alerted. They rush in. They, they rush me down to surgery. I come out of surgery. They explain to my mom. Um, the good news is we figured out what's going on with his stomach. It was a bowel obstruction from when he was born. The bad news is his heart rate is continuing to plummet. We don't know why. And he's in critical condition. And then, like three hours pass, my mom goes down to get my brother and my dad. And she's coming back upstairs and she hears over the loudspeaker code blue in room 437 and my mom works in a hospital so she knows that means flatline and that's my room so she goes up to the room and she goes to the door and the nurse is standing outside and she says I'm sorry you can't come in this is really bad and she said look I was there when he came in this world if he's leaving this world right now I'm going to be in that room so she let her in the room and she went in and they were doing you know the full compression and defibrillator electric shock my body was bouncing up and down and i was not responding and you know so my mom starts to crumble a little bit she's you know it's one thing to lose a child it's another thing to be there when it's happening and at the same time my dad and my brother were outside and this doctor said to another doctor in front of my brother not knowing it was my brother like hey we lost this kid he's already gone so my brother pushed my dad in the room to say, you need to be there with mom. And as my dad came in, he's, you know, understandably bawling and my mom turns to him to say, Gary, you gotta be quiet or they're gonna kick us out. You know, my dad's response is like, if I can't cry right now, like, when can I cry? Um, but when she turns to say that, she said she saw something she'd never seen before in a hospital outside of the room, outside of the operating room through this window, she said every doctor, every nurse, every staff member in the ICU had gathered outside and there was like 40 of them. and It was almost like they were arranged like a church choir and they were just kind of leaning in and you could se- tell they were just sending in this positive energy. And she looked at them and she was so moved. She, it was such, she said it was the most incredible spiritual experience of her life. She couldn't believe that all these people just clearly like were sending love to her son that they didn't know that it gave her the strength. And she gathered herself and she turned back to the table and she saw them bouncing me up and down and she just started coaching me. And she said, Matthew, David Polson, all these people are fighting so hard to save your life. They are fighting so hard. They're giving it all to save your life, but you're not fighting hard enough. You got to fight. You got to fight to come back. You got to show them you're a fighter. And she just kept saying that. And the flat line went on for four and a half minutes, which, in those kind of situations is an incredibly long time. Like people usually don't come back for that. And she just kept saying it that whole time, and right as she thought they were going to call it, the doctor kind of leaned away, and then he said, "Wait a second, I think we have a pulse." And right as he said that, I opened up my eyes, and I looked up at my mom, and I looked up at my dad. And I just kind of smiled and then I slowly raised my right arm really slowly and then gave him a thumbs up. And then I went back out for 48 hours and was in a coma for another two days. But I'm, there's I'm sure that's long enough of the story at this point. But uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty nuts experience.
0: Wow. <laughs> uh, I It just felt like I was like there watching this. I'm mean, i sure. Does that feel out of body for you to be describing it?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, it's such a, I mean, it's such a crazy thing. It's only been four months, right? So I'm still processing it. Um, You know, and I had one of those like come back from the light type of experiences. You know, I was, so when I, when I talk about it, I kind of go to that, that moment. And I, and it just brings me back there. It's, you know, I wasn't like walking slowly towards the light like you hear about on TV or something like that. It was more as if you're, if you've ever been scuba diving or snorkeling or whatever, and you're kind of deep underwater and you're looking up at the surface of the ocean and you can see a little bit light coming through. It was kind of like that, but the light felt like a universe of time away, you know, and the water, felt almost like this cosmic energy field where I was in the water. I was, but I was, I was myself, but I was also part of everything else. It's like, you know, you're both nothing and everything at the same time. And then I could hear my mom saying like, Matthew, David Polson, you got to fight, like you got to fight to come back. And I could hear, and I can remember looking up and thinking, wow, that's so far to go. But I just all like, I wasn't scared. You kind of have that, you know, the liberation that comes with a singular purpose, kind of like we were talking about earlier. I just felt like all I have to do is get back there. And I also felt like the energy around me was on my side. It was collaborating with me. You know, those those people were praying outside the room and all my friends were holding prayer circles and I could feel it. Like I could feel that energy. And I remember just fighting with everything I could like to make that journey and just fighting and fighting and fighting. And finally, like I kind of burst through And remember coming back in the world and, you know, that sense of fulfillment when you've just finished a long journey, it was like that, but obviously more intense than I'd ever experienced. And I remember looking at my mom and looking at my dad and just feeling pure joy, you know, just like a connection to everything in the world, all in that moment.
0: Wow. Well, uh, it's not often we get stories like this. Um, and I appreciate you, you know, going into the detail. I think that was warranted. Um, I have a lot of questions, uh, but I guess, you know, I'll save them for another time, except a couple. One would be uh, how I, you know, have tried to think about my own jumps and, and how I think about, you know, what I want to do on the time we have. You know, I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I know our listeners do, you know, when to jump was an idea on a page that I had sketched out and showed to a friend. And that friend had started the Ice Bucket Challenge, if you remember that, you know, several years ago. And yeah, he was just this larger than life guy. And, and you know, it took a tragedy uh, of him passing away in a, in a crazy accident while I was gone, you know, from the corporate job and, and gone from being his cubicle mate to, and down in Australia chasing this dream for me to kind of stop and and have kind of this like, okay, you know, we've got, so much time, but we don't have you know extended time in some ways. Um, and and what are you going to do about it? And for me, the impulse was a, a long message I sent his brother and sister, which was you know I still can pull up and it was just like I you know my last emails you know back and forth with my friend were about this idea and he was giving me a hard time because I was never really going to, you know move on it. I had one story for two years and and it was this it was this like very harsh and tragic reminder of like you know what we've got to. To, to, to get me moving and, and making it feel like there was a sense of urgency that I hadn't felt before. And, you know, I wonder, I know it's still fresh for you and it's only four months, and it'd be interesting to like talk further as, as things settle and you, you kind of look back and start to kind of put the pieces together. But even so, even in this kind of early time following, how has that changed, if at all, the way you think about, you know, your work, your, your jump, your, your life? Like what, what does that impact look like so far?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. That's amazing that you honored your friend in the way that you did, you know, because just because you had that experience, a lot of people can have that then don't take that action. So it's, I think that's the ultimate tribute to your friend that you have done that um, and been inspired by that. So good on you. First of all, I just am aware of the unlimited power of love and optimism. And that you have a choice every single moment, no matter what the circumstances, to bring love and optimism into that moment. A month before this happened to me, we had hired a new VP of marketing. We were talking about what we want our company to mean in the world outside of the money we raise. And he was driving home that night and he saw this billboard that said, Optimism Breaks Barriers. And it was this kind of shitty little billboard on a, with a boring organization on it. But he sent me this picture. And I was like, that's it. Like, that's the spirit that we want to embody. Optimism breaks barriers. So I decided I was going to talk about it at our team meeting. And I went to look up who said it and thinking it would be like Nelson Mandela or Robert Kennedy Jr. or something. And all I could find was this picture of this shitty billboard with a boring organization on it. And so I stood up at team meeting and I said, look, optimism breaks barriers is what the spirit we can infuse in the world. But I can't find out who said it. And since Heinz, who's our VP of marketing, is much more interesting than this boring organization, I'm going to credit it to him. Well, the boring organization was UCLA Health. So one month later, when I'm in UCLA Hospital, and I'm sitting there, and this doctor who saved my life is sitting at the edge of my bed, and he says to me, you know, I want you to understand something. When I finish my career 30 years from now, and I'm talking about the most extraordinary case I've ever seen, this is going to be it. He said, we had you a 0% chance of survival for three days, you know, even after we resuscitated you. And so the fact that you're going home today with your full faculties, we have no medical explanation for that. And I said, well, what is your explanation then? And he said, well, your mom was inspiring. She was in this day to do this crazy second surgery after the resuscitation. And she was grabbing people by the cheek and saying, you know, this is my son, but today this is your son and his company tries to do good in the world and you need to help them you know, and so we were inspired by that. But he said outside of that, there are larger forces at play. And I said, well, as a man of science, like, how do you define those forces? And he said, it was love. And it was optimism that brought you back. And so the power of those forces are so much greater than we can understand. And we don't have great, like great ways to explain them. But we know they exist, right? And I and it literally brought me back to the world. And so that energy that you put out You know, you can feel it. We can feel like the difference between walking in a hard, like a hot startup in the DMV, right? Like you can, nothing is touching you, but you can feel the difference, right? When you, when you go to your favorite concert, like, and you can, nothing is touching you, but you're moved, right? And so that energy, you can choose to bring that in every moment. And then the power of that is, is really limitless.
0: Wow, that definitely gave me goosebumps. I, I don't. I mean, I, of of another first for the conversation. I haven't. I haven't heard a, a quote using a team meeting come back to have such a literal full circle effect.
1: It's also crazy. Yeah.
0: Do you? Do you? So you know, what's next for you? What does success look like? You know, it seems like you know you're able to do something. You know, I think we try to do it at When to Jump. You guys are definitely doing it. Where you, you really are. You know you're growing, you're touching people you're you're building something that has an impact and that does well, does good uh you know would, would success you know when you look back and you're eighty years old that's the Jeff Bezos question I pasted on my wall at work you know what are you going to be most proud of what what will you be most proud of, Matt? Will it be you know growing something you really big will'll be moving on to something else will it be will it be totally changing gears and jumping again you know what does that look like when when you look back on your life in fifty years from now?
1: Yeah. You know, I can't speak for the 50 years. I think we have different purposes at different times in our life. You know, I think we have different meanings for our life at different times. Um, I think sometimes we've put too much pressure on ourselves to like know what the entire arc of our life is, you know. But my purpose now is really two things. One is I want to tell the story of what happened with my mom and like the hero- her heroism. You know, the fact that she stepped up in that moment to bring her son back because I think 65 year old suburban housewives don't get celebrated the way that they should. And I think that story can really resonate for people. And so that's kind of a fun side project. But the really like my quest is ICO Maze is a vi- vehicle to put as much love and optimism out in the world. Right. Like we can. I, I think work is love made visible and we can. By the money we raise, we can create a lot of opportunities and provide a lot of resources for people. And by the stories we tell, we can offer a lot of inspiration and a lot of optimism. And so I just want to grow this and make this as big, as impactful as possible, and hopefully help some people transform their life as a result. Amazing. And where should folks go? I mean,
0: obviously, there's the website. What's the best way to follow you and learn more, participate in some of these awesome different experiences and opportunities?
1: Yeah, um, the website is omaze.com. And um you can follow me personally at uh just at Matt Polson, M-A-T-T-P-O-H-L-S-O-N on Twitter. Um those are the best places.
0: So cool. And if there's one thing, you know, do you have a tidbit that you give folks who come up to you and say like, hey, I, I want to go do X, whether it's someone at business school thinking of turning down, you know, the the fancy consulting job or if it's someone that, uh, you know, is working and trying to balance a few things and, and might want to take the take the jump. Do you, do you leave them with any any tidbit? And that's totally cool if you don't.
1: I would just say that everything you want is on the other side of fear. And that everybody is scared. Like a lot of these entrepreneurial stories get told in reverse and and they seem like superheroes and they foresaw every little step. And that's just not the case. You know, every entrepreneur I've known, no matter how successful and famous and bold that they seem has been terrified at so many steps. And also most of us have no idea what we're doing at the beginning. So, you know, for those people that are considering taking that jump, just know that it's okay if you're scared, like, And it's okay if you don't think you know what you're doing because none of us felt like we, that we were all scared. And I've been so scared, so many different moments, terrified. And when I did not know how it was going to work out and it ended up happening. And if that happened for me, it can happen for you.
0: Amazing. Well, Matt, I, uh, I really appreciate. it. I guess I'd be remiss to ask if you ever got to go on the date uh, that you were supposed to go on when you went to the hospital.
1: Yeah, we're she, we're uh, we're together now. Her name's Anna, and yeah, we've been together. I mean, this happened on Father's Day, so we've been together for four months. Amazing. Well, cool. Well, listen,
0: I promised you thirty minutes. Usually, we keep it at that. This one warranted a bit more, and and for good reason. So. Uh, you know thank you for coming on and sharing your story for being so vulnerable and kind of describing the hardest parts of doing this. I think that's what makes you know our community run and and we're really grateful for that and hopefully we can uh, we can get you on again soon
1: Well thank you Mike I, I was an honor to be on and I think it's amazing what you're doing giving people the inspiration, the courage the, the insight to make these jumps The world is the world only happens the world only changes because people make these jumps so it's really cool what you're doing.
0: I appreciate it. Matt Paulson, co-founder, co-CEO of Omaze. Thanks so much for joining the When to Jump podcast. All right. I promised you that that was wild and surreal. And I certainly still have goosebumps. For more on Matt and Omaze, you can go to omaze.com. You can find out more about When to Jump at When to Jump across Instagram, Facebook, all over the web. We love to hear from you. Continue to reach out, when to jump.com, Send us your comments, feedback, join the, the network directory. We're hearing from a lot of folks from Canada. We love you, Canada. We love you, America. We love you everywhere else you're listening to, uh, when to jump from. So keep coming, keep listening. Uh, hope this conversation makes you step back and take a pause today. Certainly did that for me. Uh, and join us next week. My name is Mike Lewis. Catch you soon.